there's a McKinsey report from, I think, 2012 or something that has agriculture as the least digitized industry. And you've got all these different rows of, you know, mining and financial services. And down the bottom is agriculture and hunting. And it's like all red across all the columns. And that's been put up at every conference in agriculture for, you know, the last uh, eight, eight to 10 years now. And at some point it, it started to get really frustrating because you don't spend very much time on a modern large scale farm in the U.S. and Australia and many places in, in the developed world before you realize there's a lot of technology out here. This equipment is very complex. The decisions are highly complex. And, and to your point before, Jeff, there's lots of science as well in how these systems are run in the soil and the agronomy. One of the first investments we made, we bought a company, a small company called PastureMap. And PastureMap helps regenerative grazers uh, manage their land. The way regenerative uh, agriculture works is you're trying to mimic the way ruminants migrated naturally. Um, and so PastureMap allows you to sort of carve up your land and track where your animals have been um, and track rest periods. Because the main thing you want to do is let your land rest before it gets grazed again. Well, hey, Jeff DeVerter here, the host at Clown Talk. And over the past year, I've been really focused on bringing you some of the brightest minds in cloud-based technology today in some really engaging conversations. We've even looked at the impact the tech has had on some new businesses and their founders and ultimately their companies. Well, today we start a new series where I'll be taking you behind the scenes, if you will, to the impact that technology is having on some very specific industries. In some cases, like what you'll find in the episode that we have coming up on the music industry, technology was a huge disruptor. In other cases, like in the episode on the pet industry coming up as well, technology has become an augmentation to the relationship between pets and their owners. But in this, our first episode on the tech behind the industry, I'll be taking you behind the scenes on how technology is having an impact, not just on the agriculture industry, but quite possibly on the entire earth. The line between application and infrastructure is virtually invisible in these modern apps. The kind of thing that a global computing fabric with immense resilience and scale can deliver without even breaking the sweat. That's really what the promise of the cloud's always been. It's all focused on the business objectives. That's where we craft the plan. In the tech world, we like to celebrate the lone genius, but I'm just going to tell you right now, they're just the convenient face as founders to focus on. Welcome to Cloud Talk. Here's your host, Jeff Deverter. There's this movement in agriculture, and it started back sometime in the 70s, and it's called regenerative agriculture. Now, the desired outcome of this type of agriculture is that the farming or the ranching or whatever happens to be going on on the land doesn't just exist sustainably, but actually helps to regenerate the land and the soil and the native habitats. Why is this important, you ask? Because when a farmer or a rancher dedicates a piece of land to a single cause, it disrupts the natural patterns and the land begins to deteriorate. Now, without going into all of the science or even the politics around this, I'll just encourage you to watch a TED Talk from Alan Savory. The link will be in the show notes. But I want to pick up the story from here, because while the science of the time aided by tech may have helped get us into a rough predicament, tech is absolutely coming alongside to aid in the solution. I want to start today with a conversation I had with Lou Mormon. Now, some of you may know Lou as a longtime employee and past president of Rackspace, but he's on a new mission now with a new venture firm called Soilworks. So Lou, perhaps you can give us a little background on regenerative agriculture and even food production. 
Yeah, well, I mean, you know, give a, a slight bit of history about how we've grown food over the last hundred years. I'll be quick about it. But, you know, in the early days, we had so much land uh, and we gave land to uh, uh, tons of people to move west. Um, and we didn't know that much about how really to grow things. So what we did is we tilled it all up. Uh, we planted uh, seeds um, and we grew a lot of food. It actually worked pretty well, except all the tilling um, disturbed the soil and we ended up having the Dust Bowl. And uh, we all read about the Dust Bowl. We think of it as, as a sort of just a bad weather event, but it really wasn't a bad weather event. It was, it was an ecological sort of man-made uh, disaster because of our tilling and our lack of understanding of how food should have been grown. So we ended up after coming out of the Dust Bowl with, oh my God, how are we going to grow enough food so we don't all starve? And luckily, um, uh, we had the Green Revolution, which uh, here in Texas, you know, really Texas A&M was, was a big part of that. And we came up with chemical fertilizers and inputs to try and replicate what the soil actually had. And what did that do? Well, it grew a lot of food. Um, and for 50 years, uh, we, we started growing really cheap food. And we now have more food than we know what to do with. In fact, uh, obesity is a much bigger problem than hunger in the world today uh, because we're damn good at growing cheap calories. Uh, but there's a trade-off for everything. And what have we done? We have basically just spoiled our soils. We're growing uh, our, our, the nutrient density of our food is extraordinarily low. And we've got metabolic disease that is uh, going crazy because of the kinds of calories we're growing. And really what we should have done to begin with is gone back to first principles and figured out how do we work with nature to uh, grow things in a way that is um, that we can take from it and give back all at the same time. And regenerative agriculture really is a movement to try and understand exactly how nature works and how we can work in harmony with nature um, to grow a lot of great food, give back to the soil. Um, and um, it's really quite something. It's been around for, for multiple decades. It's a proven model. And it is really amazing that you can get better yields uh, sequester carbon and grow more nutrient-rich food if you really understand how nature works. And um, so, really, this is what we're trying to do: is 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 have the next chapter of agriculture be about regenerative, and let's move past the chemicals because they're no longer working like they used to, and they're poisoning us. Well, I think your point is well founded as well because the the, the amount of calories we're cre we're creating way too many and the wrong types, and the fact that that this food is so nutrient poor that now we feel like we need other supplements or things to help us help us be better when you're right everything that you need nature is already provided for as long as you get it to work in the way that it was intended designed evolved to to actually grow but you started right. yeah but you started your career you know it and in fact we talked about one of your businesses scaleworks where you're investing in you know startup firms in the tech space and uh, but but now you're you're merging i would think that technology is influencing your thoughts around regenerative um, how how does that collision um, either reconciling or, or colliding in your world? Yeah, well, I, I would say, you know, I mean, I was at Rackspace for, uh, you know, almost 15 years in, in a variety of uh, roles. So I was at the internet in your very early days. And, you know, my our day job is working with SaaS companies. Um, we, you know, we buy and operate them. And so uh, we're, we're obviously big believers in technology and innovation. Um, and this is what drives so much of the progress uh, for all of us. But I think at the core, we think of ourselves as business people. Um, you know, I'm not an engineer by, by training. Um, I've never been hands-on keyboard in terms of coding. I'm, I'm really a business person. And what this is what we've, we, we kind of wondered what, what do we got so interested in regenerative ag, but we kind of went, what can we bring to it? And 
we met so many great people in the space, but many of them were farmers or nonprofit folks and, uh, you know, or, or very, very small business people. Um, and we really felt like what it needed is sustainable, scalable business models. And in my opinion, nothing scales like business. I think business is getting a bad rap, some, some deserved. But in many ways, um, you know, if you really want to scale something, business is the best way. Um, and so we thought, how can we go figure out what the, the bottlenecks are and figure out so how regenerative ag could become a great business? Mm. If it's a great business, you'll have more people practicing it. You'll have more people consuming it. Um, and so we got to figure out how to make it to where it's irresistible for, for landowners to, to uh, adopt regenerative practices and consumers consume regenerative food. And those are the kinds of problems we want to go tackle and we want to do it with business. That's super interesting. Now, when you think about, you know, getting the, the, the especially the multi-generational farm, farmer and farm operations to, you know, behave in a way that's different maybe than Texas A&M told them to do it 25 years ago or 30 years ago. Uh, the U.S. has a lot of, in Europe to a degree as well, uh, a lot of good history and proven success with the regenerative model, but it still is change. Uh, have, you, have you confronted that change with, with, with a lot of these companies yet or, or you're the products that you're investing in and, and in their consumers? Well, I mean, there's a ton of inertia, as you talk about, in terms of how farming has been done. It's been done the same way for you know, 50, 60 years, and it's deeply embedded in, in the education system um, and the regulatory environment. I mean, you know, um, the, the, the government is a huge player in how food is grown and the food security and, and the insurance industry. And so there's not a lot of incentives for, for people to change. Um, and it can take time to change. So this is absolutely one of the big problems. I mean, one of, one of the ways we think it could change is, um, first of all, if consumers demand it. Um, I do think people go where the market goes. So we got to get consumers aware that this is better food and it's more environmentally friendly. Um, so if we can get consumer awareness up, um, you would get farmers who would get a premium for it. Um, uh, you know, another thing that we would love to see is, um, and, and I think this is going to happen and it's already starting to happen is that I think landowners are going to be able to get carbon credits, um, for the work they're doing, because if you are building soil and organic carbon in your soil, you are actually sequestering carbon. I mean, one of the, the biggest carbon sink in the world is soil. Absolutely. Uh, it's not rainforest. It is, it is grasslands, grassland, uh, soil. And so, you know, if we could really get, um, folks to be paid to transition to it, um, which I think is go is going to happen. I think we could, that would be another motivator. And then I think the third one is we do need some tweaks to the regulatory regime. I mean, we we need to uh, we need to, to to have insurance programs for people who are doing regenerative, uh, and we need to incent it. And um, um, we need to also take a close look at what kinds of chemicals we really want to allow in our in our food system because I think we're, we're paying a big price for it. So look, it's, this is, this is not a six month journey, Jeff. This is a, this is a 20 year change. that's going to happen or 50 year change. that's going to happen. It's going to be slow and it's going to be gradual and it's going to start off as a premium niche product. But, um, you know, we think over time it can become uh, mainstream and, and we can sort of deliver great food to the average consumer out there. But we've been so ingrained by 
you mentioned the education system through through the process, through industry, through regulation, through the farm bill, uh, that the way we've always done it in our collective memories is the best way to do it, other than maybe, you know, a, a fancier tractor that can do something on its own, as opposed to yeah. maybe we actually need to take a hard look at the calories that are going in, at our lifestyles. But that's really where the problem, I think, gets super hard because you have to impact individuals with with wisdom and knowledge that is counter to what they've been taught. Yeah, and look, I mean, I, I would say, um, you know, I have strong views that that COVID is exposing uh, I, the the metabolic issues we've created through our our dietary uh, challenges and nutrition challenges and our and our conventional wisdom around it. And I think that when you go look, I mean, look, I think one of the things we're learning about COVID is there's really um, not very many good strategies. I mean, there's, you know, you can't figure out what country's doing better than the next. And I think when you look at mortality, um, I think metabolic rate of metabolic disease is going to be one of the biggest drivers. And this is one of the reasons why America is struggling so badly is that we have the highest incidence of diabetes um, and other metabolic diseases in the world. And this is, you know, this is not people's fault. This is because we have a dietary uh, set of conventional wisdom and uh, food system that produces calories that give you these diseases. And, um, you know, we've got the medical system who's headwind against it too. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, eye opening that has to happen and a lot of change that has to happen, but I think it's starting to happen. Well, let's get back to, uh, to some of the tech. Uh, so let's talk about pasture map, uh, one of the, uh, apps and the companies that now exist inside of soil works. What's, how does this fit into that mission? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the, um, first uh, investments we made, we bought a company, a small company called PastureMap, and PastureMap helps regenerative grazers uh, manage their land. And uh, so one of the differences, you know, one of the ways you've historically raised cattle or sheep um, is you've put them out on big pastures and you've let them find their way, you know, find something to eat and, and graze. And in six months, we'll come out and uh, we'll make sure you're all healthy. And uh, we might move you to another pasture for six months, but Pretty much, you let everyone go, and and um, you wait until they're of of the right weight and size to take them uh, to the sale barn or or to the feedlot. And the way regenerative uh, agriculture works is you're trying to mimic the way ruminants migrated naturally. So think about a world where we had no fences. We used to have, you know, we had 100 million buffalo in this country, um, and they would move slowly over time. Uh, eat the tops of grass and move on. And what that allowed to have happen is the grass roots would stay firm. The growth would, would happen much more quickly and uh, there'd be a lot more nutrients uh, and root systems that, that, that remained in the soil. Um, and you had a much healthier ecosystem. And um, so uh, it's harder to do that when you've got the entire country fenced up. Uh, you just can't have your cows uh, graze on up to Wyoming from here. Um, and so what Pasture Map allows you to do uh, is uh, use uh, temporary electric fences, which I think is one of the other technological advances that are, is, has really allowed this to have happen. Is cheap, uh, you know, high tensile and poly wire fences that can be solar charged um, that you can put up really quickly, and it allows you to put your animals on a small bit of pasture um, and move them every single day, uh, if not twice a day in the spring when you've got a lot of growth. Um, and so pasture map allows you to sort of carve up your land and track where your animals have been um, and track rest periods. Because the main thing you want to do is let your land rest before it gets grazed again. Um, and then you can look at over time, you can take pictures and images 
um, and you can see uh, your forage, how your forage uh, uh, materials growing over the years as your regenerative practices grow. So, um, you know, we, we've got about 4 million acres that are using uh, the tool, uh, which we're really excited about. We're hoping to double that next year um, because we want the regenerative movement to, to really grow. And we want to be the indispensable tool to help regenerative uh, grazers uh, thrive and, and succeed. Nature is a collection of, of species and life and things. And so what I see a lot of folks doing also is as those, as those cows move, they're bringing the chickens in behind them. The chickens scratch up with the cows leave behind, separate. It takes yep. all that manure, breaks it, break, opens it up so you don't have these hard, crusty cow patties, you might call them. And, uh, but actually that just then makes its way down into the, into, the, into the soil, which helps build soil, which is when you think about the fact that the entire world sustains because of 14 inches of, of dirt on top of, of rock, uh, you got to take care of that stuff and you got to build it when you can because it, it builds very slowly, but it washes away quickly. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, that, that's certainly, you know, one of the, one of the, the, the dictates of regenerative agriculture is, is you want diversity, uh, plant and animal diversity uh, uh, across your land. And this is how soil uh, grows and and um, like in my land we don't we don't we don't follow the cows with with chickens but uh, because we use no chemicals and we allow the land to heal we have gotten dung beetles back um, which are one of the most magical things on the planet and we don't have cow patties sitting around getting hard anymore they take that the, the dung beetles take uh, take that dung um, they reproduce in it and they also take take it into the soil um, and uh, use it for food, and also some of the nutrients and bacteria get left in the soil, and the whole process starts to to sort of uh, proceed much more quickly. So this is this is how regeneration happens: is that you build these ecosystems that are self-sustaining and um, flourish on top of each other. Um, so you end up with so much more than you had before, and so much more that you could ever get with using chemicals. Absolutely, and in the and in the the old methods, you would find you would be out there with chemicals killing the dung beetles because they'd be a pest who would be uh, in the way. And that just you know, That's right. destroys the, the whole environment. One of the things that we're, we're really excited to do uh, with Pasture Map uh, is we want to use it also as a way to help get carbon credits to uh, landowners, uh, which we've talked about. And so uh, we're going to be integrating um, a number of technologies to get soil samples, um, satellite imagery, uh, and other technologies so we can validate that uh, carbon actually is getting sequestered um, and uh, farmers can get paid for this. Um, and we think that's going to be a game changer. Um, right now, there's not a, a public market for uh, carbon, but there's a big private market emerging, uh, mostly because the tech industry is saying we want to be carbon neutral, which is great, uh, and they're willing to pay for it. Um, so, um, you know, that, that's one of the places um, that, that uh, we're really looking at investing. Uh, we've also launched a, a regenerative meat brand called Wholesome, uh, which, you know, look, we're good at using good old e-commerce. I mean, I don't know if that's great technology, but it's, it, it works. certainly works these days. Yeah. And so going direct to consumer, um, you know, with our e-commerce site, we're also uh, working with a number of restaurants and retailers here in Central Texas. And we'd love to take that national uh, over the next year. Uh, a year or two. Um, and, you know, we're, we're continuing to, to look at lots of different innovations that we would like to invest in on the grazing side. Um, you know, the processing side of the house is, is very old fashioned. And we think there's a lot of places where uh, technology can play a role in helping to get animals processed. And we think we can do it in a remote fashion or a mobile fashion. Um, but again, some of the regulations have to catch up. 
And of course, we're starting to learn about things on the crop side. Uh, we made our first investment uh, in a company called True Algae, uh, which uses um, uh, very cool technology to grow algae uh, in a warehouse in a very energy efficient way. Uh, it grows it um, uh, very effectively to have a, a, a biological um, fertilizer um, that is, uh, in our minds, very regenerative uh, in terms of uh, how it helps specialty crops grow quickly and without chemicals um, using true algae that is that is that is uh, grown uh, in warehouses. So, and that's our first investment on the on the uh, crop side. So, we're looking at lots of things. So, you know, we'll see what what, what the future brings. Now, are you starting to get the picture as to how interconnected all of the systems in agriculture actually are? It's an amazingly complex system. In fact, if you were to abstract the growing things from the interconnected agricultural system, it might even start to look like a highly complex electronic or computer system. That's one of the things that attracted my next guest into the space. I'd like to introduce you to Sarah Nolette. Now, Sarah, while not a native to the region, is currently located down in Sydney. Sydney, Australia. She's involved in many different aspects of ag tech, including helping turning farmers into founders, leading her own venture firm in the space, as well as having her own podcast called Ag Tech So What. So before we get too deep into the tech, Sarah, take us back. Let's begin at the start of your journey. Yeah, sure. So I um, I grew up in, in Silicon Valley, despite being based in Sydney, Australia now, and I will definitely use some kind of Australian expressions here, which I which I can no longer help myself. Uh, uh, but yeah, I grew up in Silicon Valley. Parents both worked in the tech industry, and I guess we had a hobby farm from when I was about 12 and spent some time there. Silicon Valley is a pretty hippie, crunchy place at times, so always cared about the environment and, and healthy food. I was a, a semi-professional athlete, all-American soccer player, uh, so it was always sort of in the background. But I never thought that would be a career. And, and I guess dad probably told me from some point, you know, go make money and then do something good for the world. So I, I listened at first and, and went out to the East Coast and studied computer science and human factors engineering, worked in the defense industry. And it wasn't until a accidental year long vacation, holiday, gap year, whatever you want to call it, to South America that I kind of rediscovered agriculture and how much applicability the different technologies um, that I was using in the defense industry had to solving big systemic problems in our food system and was something that I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing and started transitioning my career in, into agriculture from that experience um, and probably connecting a few of those dots back to things I was passionate about uh, growing up in California. It's always great when you can turn your passions into your profession. So regenerative agriculture, a lot of people get pretty worked up over the term, especially those more in science side. But now connect the dots for us on how you glued together your, you know, your science and your technology background into agriculture. Yeah, it's a highly polarizing term these days. Uh, so I would say it's actually interesting. It kind of goes back to my time in South America, in some ways I was living on a small organic vegetable farm and, you know, pulling weeds as the volunteers do, because that's sort of how you get room and board. And so you spend a few weeks and it's amazing. You're outside in nature, not looking at a screen. And then you start to go, well, why don't we just build a robot to pull these weeds? Because this is not a very fun task, right? Like I'm, I've got flies on me, it's hot, it's sweaty, and I'm probably not even doing the best job because you know that one's far away, and my back hurts, and and whatever. It's really, really tough work, and that goes for many other tasks in agriculture. And so that's what got me, and I think many people thinking about how technology can 
be both part of agriculture at scale, but also create really positive environmental outcomes. Um, so in terms of regenerative agriculture, um, part of the challenge is that there is no one definition and everyone brings a, a bit of their own flavor to it, which is why some of that controversy gets created. But it came out of a set of principles around how to farm more in line with nature is how um, you, many define it. And so it's it's things like working with nature, not against nature. And, and as you said, Jeff, using fewer synthetic chemicals and more of um, natural systems and natural aspects of diversity um, to improve things like soil health and, and outcomes. It often has a livestock component as well. Um, again, this gets into the no definition fact, but it often has a kind of combined cropping and livestock aspect uh, to improve soil health and have a perhaps a rotational grazing or otherwise mixed uh, cropping and livestock system. Well, and, you know, as we talk about technology being used uh, in in the context of ag, then um, you know a lot of folks will say, "What well, you know?" There's, they'll they'll mix the term technology and science and and just kind of think them together. And that's where I think part of the problem also shows up is science has been very involved in agriculture, uh, and the regenerative folks would say in a very detrimental way to the global system. Just in the context of okay, let's let's monocrop. Let's now let's control the weed. Now let's control the biome. Let's control the the, the DNA structure of even what we're planting. Uh, and what you end up then is these these large scale uh, farms uh, that that only do one thing. And you know nature just doesn't do one thing. And I think that's one thing where I get really excited about the regenerative side is that you can treat those. Those, those multiple habitats and things that exist from the bugs to the dirt, to the small animals, to the chickens, to the, to the, to the cows, and then back into the grasses and treat them as a technology system and then apply technology to make that even better. Mm, yeah, it's, it's exactly right. I, I would say the, uh, again, you know, li living on the small farm in, in South America, my view was, was probably very far on the on the side of, you know, Monsanto is evil and and let's get rid of big ag and, you know, GMOs are bad. And and you start to question, OK, well, let's look at the science and what do the peer reviewed journals say? And, and turns out a lot of the ones that say that climate change is real also talk about GMOs being positive for the environment. And so then you get into, well, it's actually a business model question and it's incentives of these companies. And and that complexity is absolutely what I love about agriculture. Um, and, and I guess where I personally sort of land on that is that the economics right now struggle to stack up for some of these systems that consumers think they want and technology can really help to make that that possible in, in new ways. So smaller scale equipment to enable more diverse systems, different supply chains, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we can um, enable farmers to farm the way that consumers want and perhaps not uh, sacrifice how much we produce or the quality of food we produce um, along the way, because that becomes one of the big pushbacks is, well, if we just farm in this small scale, very diverse, regenerative way, how are we going to feed the population? And what I'm excited about is breaking some of those trade-offs to be able to have profitable, scalable farms that feed the population, but do so in ways that don't uh, cause detrimental harm to the planet. So we had just heard from Lou Mormon a few moments ago, Sarah, who talked about how he's a business person first, and he's using that as a primary vehicle to promote this method of farming. Well, let's talk about your business world for a moment. Uh, how are you set up? What are you, what's your role? What's your job? What are your companies? 
Yeah, sure. So um, I'm the the CEO of the Authentic Group, um, and within the Authentic Group, we spend 100% of our time helping innovators who will have an impact uh, in in agriculture. And we think about both innovation and adoption because you can build great technologies, and I'm sure your listeners will know that. But if they don't get adopted uh, and actually deployed out there, then they they struggle to have an impact. So we think about both of those, and we do that through our advisory work and through our investing work at Tenacious Ventures, where we invest in early stage startups who are. Uh, revolutionizing food and agriculture and thinking about transitioning ag to a carbon neutral and climate change resilient future. So we think about impact a lot. And underpinning both of those is programs we run like Farmers to Founders, where we work directly with farmers to be more involved in innovation. And our uh, content platform, Ag Tech So What, with our podcast and newsletter and all the other ways we uh, get our insights out there and learn from others uh, in the space around the world. So that's an incredible point around adoption. And the greatest tech is useless if people aren't using it. So let's talk about some of the barriers to that. You know, what, what's, first of all, the, the opinion of tech in ag from the outside in, and then also, you know, what is really stopping and slowing down the adoption of new tech in some, maybe even some of these smaller areas or farther out in remote rural areas? Uh, what's keeping some of those, those farms from adopting this new tech? Yeah, I would say the uh, there's a McKinsey report from, I think, 2012 or something that has agriculture as the least digitized industry. And you've got all these different rows of, you know, mining and financial services. And down the bottom is agriculture and hunting. And it's like all red across all the columns. And that's been put up at every conference in agriculture for, you know, the last uh, eight, eight to 10 years now. And at some point, it, it started to get really frustrating because, you don't spend very much time on a modern large scale farm in the US and Australia and many places in, in the developed world before you realize there's a lot of technology out here. This equipment is very complex. The decisions are highly complex. And, and to your point before, Jeff, there's lots of science as well in how these systems are run in the soil and the agronomy. That said, there are still big gaps between especially the emerging technology world, things like artificial intelligence, things like robotics, and the mainstream adoption in agriculture. And one of the big, biggest reasons I would say is that ag tech and a lot of these emerging technologies are really new. And they're still evolving and they're going through the up and down the hype cycle and they're going through various iterations. And farmers are used to getting things from big established companies where it doesn't get rolled out till it's ready. And now they've got all these startups coming saying, today it's a purple one. Oh no, tomorrow it's a blue one because we got feedback on it. No way it should change. And that's really con really confusing. Um, the other one I would say is the languages that these two groups speak are often just really different. So you not only do you have kind of urban rural challenges, but you've got tech developers who are talking about AI and you've got farmers who are talking about AI. And then you soon realize that artificial intelligence and artificial insemination are not the same thing. And so you, you genuinely are speaking different languages uh, and, and that can be really challenging too. So I, I would say overcoming that adoption challenges both work to be done on the ag side to be more open to technology, to get involved earlier, to help shape solutions, to help try things, and on the technology or, or startup uh, and, and an innovator side to have stronger value propositions, to understand their users more, to understand value chains and incentives. And it's actually the magic that happens in the middle of those two uh, that, that's really exciting. Well, and it seems like the operations that are best to adopt maybe some of the new tech are ones that are run very systematically, that have a detailed management plan that can be measured. You see, when they take a systematic approach to their operations, when there's a management plan in place, well, this enables the collection of data. And when you have data, you can prove if something is working or it's not working. You can prove that the tech is making a difference. 
It's exactly true. And and selling into farms is like selling into any other business where you've got kind of early adopters and people who are quite advanced in their planning and their systems and their decision making. And they know that they've got a, da- a gap in data collection here. And if they had this, they could do it better. And so they're in once you show them the ROI. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who don't even know, you know what you're talking about in terms of mapping out these systems. Uh, and maybe it's more like, let's get our paper-based records into Excel or into a cloud-based you know, accounting system before we can start talking about analytics and decision-making and planning. And that's actually often not a value judgment about how good they are at farming, but it's how good they are at this layer of technology over the top. And so that's one of the big challenges in ag. And if you add to that, these are also often families. And so you've got this whole um, fabric of culture wrapped up in this, where if you go into sell to a farm, you might be sitting around the kitchen table having dinner that's made by a grandmother. And so think about that in a, in a sales context or in a technology context, completely different than a nine to five, you know, inside outside sales phone call. And that's one of the huge benefits of agriculture is it's so personal and these communities and these people are absolutely magnificent, but it is pretty different uh, from a kind of dynamics of sales and technology adoption. Absolutely. All right. So what tech then is making a difference on grandma's farm today? Where have you seen it making an impact on that family farm? Yeah, I mean, the, the mainstream um, things here would even still be GPS tractors and, and some of the equipment that in the tech world we've heard about for a long time. More on the cutting edge, uh, we're seeing a lot more in aut- uh, autonomy and robotics. Um, so moving into smaller scale equipment that's more autonomous or semi-autonomous to save labor units, but also to unlock new tasks and, and practices. So uh, an example of that would be uh, a company we've invested in called Swarm Farm Robotics. They have a smaller scale autonomous agricultural equipment platform. And right now for a farmer, they're thinking about going out, buying a half million, million dollar uh, piece of equipment, staffing it with a labor unit that's probably hard to find and hard to train and going out and, and spraying. And so the kind of decision making economics and factors there are let's get as many passes across the field and sort of optimize for that equipment utilization and that labor utilization. That's not necessarily the best outcome for the farm, for the soil, et cetera. But when you kind of think about how to break that trade off, it's really tough until you have small scale equipment that can run autonomously and go out and chip away at the weeds or zap them with a microwave and run all night long whenever it wants. And and it's until you think about that autonomy, that smaller scale running 24 seven, that you can even unlock those practices. That's the same on a turf farm where you can mow the grass 24 seven and get the quality of turf up as and get a premium for it as well as save the labor unit. So that's what's really exciting in, in the autonomy space is unlocking some of these new practices that have bottom line impacts to the farm and also environmental impacts uh, in, in many cases. Well, and when they think about environmental impacts, is that something that's really front of mind for them? Is it a key to their decision making process or is it something that you have to show them and educate them that treating the soil well does actually pay dividends? Yeah, I would say you know farmers are our people, and so the, all the spectrums exist. Of I'm just solving for A or versus I'm solving for B, or or I've got some nuanced you know um, solution for both, and that's definitely true in in agriculture. I would say what's different is you know when farmers say I'm a fifth generation farmer, I'm a, I'm a seventh generation farmer with so much pride. I find that both. Um, 
incredibly worthy of respect that they've been taking care of that land for five generations, for seven generations. And that's not to be laughed at because if they're still farming there, that's incredibly exciting. I also worry a little bit that, you know, we don't say that in any other industry. We don't say I'm a fifth generation banker and find ourselves proud of that in in, in any way. Um, And so is it more a sign that we're just doing it the way we always have because that's how we've always done it and we're not innovating? And the answer is it's somewhere in between. And that's, you know, that's true of all farmers who have to take care of that land, have to be thinking about what they're planning the next seasons, how their um, you know crops and things will be truly sustainable, um, but also thinking about running a real business. And they end up anywhere on that spectrum from some who probably shouldn't be farming, frankly, uh, in terms of the environmental outcomes they're causing, and others who we should have them grow their farming operations till they have more land under management because they're truly striking an amazing balance and producing food to the world and taking care of the environment. It really is amazing when you can find that balance. All right. So let's get back to the tax, Sarah. So what's exciting and what areas of farming are you seeing some really interesting innovation in ag tech? Yeah, one of the one of the areas that's really exciting is I guess a theme we call democratization of testing. And we're seeing this in every other industry where it used to be sort of centralized, uh, you know, systems or, or entities that had the power to do testing, whether that was in, you know, servers or, or hardware. And a lot of this stuff's getting distributed and, and at the edge and more democratized in terms of who can do what. And so that's playing out in biology in terms of, you know, us all doing 23andMe. It's playing out in medical devices. We've got paper-based, you know, sensors. And it's playing out in agriculture in terms of sort of disrupting what used to be a, a highly centralized, if I want to sample my grain or if I want to sample my soil, I've got to dig a deep hole. I've got to put it in a bag. I've got to maybe put a barcode on it. I've got to send it to the lab because the lab's the only one with the testing or the grain storage site's the only one with the testing equipment. They give me their answer. I respond probably too late. My decision-making abilities are low, et cetera, et cetera. And as we push technology to be able to test um, you know, at the time we're making the decision or even get analytics that help us move earlier, the range of business decisions that open up totally increases. And so we're seeing that around harvest planning uh, with grain quality testing. We're seeing that around um, soil carbon sequestration potential and getting soil credits or biodiversity credits um, because we can do testing that means we can register for these schemes in a much more cost-effective way instead of, again, having to dig holes, send them to a lab, wait, pay tens of thousands of dollars, et cetera. So this, um, this sort of theme of democratization of testing is playing out on farm, in the supply chain with food safety and traceability, and, and on and on. And I think that kind of pushing um, down the cost of, of sensors and, and therefore increasing decision making power uh, is, is absolutely the beginning of how it will transform agriculture. So the uh, the ability to have the right data at the right time to make the right decision. Yes. Huh? Same thing as in business. Yeah, exactly. Which it is. It <laughs> ultimately is. It's easy for some folks to forget that when they're on the outside looking in. All right. So when we think about having all the right data, it also means then that uh, that the farmers can start to run some what we know in business to be what if analysis. You know, if I don't get all the rain, if I if the crops, you know, if I get half of what I'm supposed to have, or if I get 150 percent of what I expected, what's that kind of end result going to be? What are you seeing in that space? Who's the who's the winner there? Yeah, we're seeing tons of that. And, and that's been a really um big advancement in our equipment that's collecting data and satellites that are collecting data in all kinds of remote sensing and then in kind of farm management systems that are helping farmers go from the notebook into a computer into something with a lot more analytics to be able to make those decisions. I would say even that space is still 
kind of shaking out winners and losers because there's a lot, like if you ask any farmer, they're getting 17 tech companies call them every week, trying to sell them another farm management system. Uh, and, and it's not exactly clear which one's better than the other one. And then you talk to farmers, like I'm sure we had uh, on the podcast saying, well, no, I am using these systems. It's completely changed my profitability planning, uh, logistics equations, and I'm making way more money and also taking more holidays each year. Um, so again, a, a whole spectrum, but, but you're exactly right. You've distilled it down into the key point, better data, but data itself is, is not very helpful unless it enables a decision and that that decision actually has a benefit to me. And, and that benefit could be, I've got more time on Friday night to spend with my family. I can make better planning decisions that save me water usage, that save me costs, that improve the environment. Uh, I can, you know, hire a different kind of employee or, or um, save money on labor, et cetera, et cetera. Well, well, right. So better data, better decisions. Uh, but in order to have that data, you have to first have the tech. And in order for them to have the tech, they have to decide to take the tech, whether it's being given to them, whether they've got to go buy it. And that's not always very easy. Yeah, that, that psychology one is is a whole can of worms, Jeff, that, that we could open up a, a little bit more. So it's it's not just the, um, I, you know, my, I've always done it this way. And so I'll, you know, ch- change is hard. It's also that, um, you know, as humans, we're not always rational decision makers, whether whether we're farmers or otherwise, and we're solving for different factors than might be obvious to the outside. So I think irrigation is a really good example where um, some of these companies will come in and say, look, I've measured your soil moisture profile. I've measured how much water you're using. I've measured how much diesel you're using to pump that water. And if you just use this sensor to turn you know, um, things differently, uh, p- pumps on and off, whatever, um, then you could save tens of thousands of dollars per year. And you would think that a technology like that would just get lapped up, right? But it doesn't. And and big irrigation companies and startups have spent tons of money. And so part of the challenge is some of these companies have given just data and, and information and not help with the decision. But even the ones that are starting to help with the decision are sometimes over-engineering that. So they might say, and we'll automate the turning on and off of the pump. But they've then missed this human psychology factor of, well, what if I don't want that pump turned off or on? Cause I've got a different answer, right? I know something about that row or, you know, you've, the computers told me it, but I don't trust it because I want my guy to go out and look at it. Cause he's also checking fence lines or, you know, for pests or diseases. And so until we really understand the psychology of how those decisions are being made, it's really tough to build solutions, even if they have the best data and the best automation, because we haven't really understood how those decisions are being made and what factors technical, human, economic uh, are, are being considered. And so I think that's been a big limitation from tech developers on the outside saying, but look, the data shows this and the ROI shows this, and they haven't understood the psychology. Um, so there's still more work to be done there. So I'm currently in my truck heading down a small farm to market road, going to interview Rick Turner. Now, Rick is a Texas rancher and he raises uh, a cattle, Wagyu beef. And he's been doing this for a number of years, but not just raising them, raising grand champion steers. So I'm going over there to find out how technology plays a part in him raising grand champion cattle. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm Rick Turner, and um, well, I work for Shell mm-hmm. uh, in the IT department for 33 years. Wow! And then I uh, always knew that uh, I would be getting into the cattle business whenever I whenever I retired. My right. my family's been in the cattle business. Uh, my great great granddad uh, homesteaded in the Texas Panhandle. My granddad raised cows. My, my dad raised a few cows, but he's primarily a butcher. Okay. And so I got into the cattle business and, uh, we, we got into the Wagyu cattle 
So how many today. cattle do you have here? Well, not all here, but all uh, I raise, uh, I raise like uh, 50. Okay. Wow. Uh, well, I have 50. Yeah. And uh, so that's a little bit higher than I want to be. But uh, but I'm actually, I, I lease uh, uh, about 150 acres, and then I lease some other land from uh, other places. Yeah. Here, it's all in the general area. All in the general area, and okay. and we own a ranch up in. Uh, and the panhandle still mm -hmm. from my right. my family, but uh, right now I do not have any cow there. Okay, so how long have you been doing this? Uh, we I got into it uh, in 2013. Okay, and you've had some good results. Yeah, yeah, we've had good results. We've uh, we've you've won a few things. We've won uh, I think two or three grand champions at Houston. At Houston, uh huh. That's and then the show. We've, we've had several reserve champions, and so we did, yeah, yeah. the Houston Livestock Show. Yeah, so that's done incredible. Well. Incredible. So, so tell me, how does you know you you had thirty some years in in IT and Shell? How does that influence what you're doing out here with the cattle, or or how? What other technology do you do you employ? Well, we uh, you know first of all, it, it is, uh, in the cattle business, there's a lot of data, mm -hmm. and so uh, there's several ways of managing the data and trying to keep up with which cows have had their shots. Mm -hmm because uh, what day they were born, and then these are registered cows. Okay. And so what we have to do is, uh, is do a lot of, uh, we have to take samples of the ear. So we do ear samples, mm -hmm. tissue samples, and then send it off and where they parent verify, uh, you know, the, the sire and the dam to make sure that the cattle, you know, are- They are what they say you say they, they are. They are what they, you say they are. And then that goes into the registration database and then trying to keep track of which pastures they're in and who's mated to who and yep. all that different kind of stuff. It always comes back to data, doesn't it? It does. It's all about data and how you keep track of it and that kind of thing. How do you manage your pastures as far as knowing who's where and, and how you rotate? Uh, I have a software package that I use. What's to, it called? It's called CattleMax. Okay. And CattleMax, is, it's my data. Uh, in my database and I keep track of it and keep it keeps track of the parentage it keeps track of the shots it keeps track of where they are and it, and and those kind of things and then uh, when I go to register a cow mm -hmm. the 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 Texas Wagyu or the the American Wagyu Association has a database that that I then upload my data into their data once it's been verified via okay. DNA that they qualify amazing yeah. amazing you, you you look out of this you know, we're out at Rick's place and you look out at this beautiful pasture and you see cows and you see nature and you think, the first thing that doesn't come to mind is, I wonder what tech is involved here. Yeah. What is, what's the data behind all of this? But it always gets back to data. Right. I've been investigating these tags that, that, uh, that you can use GPS because, you know, I, I register 150 acres yeah. and then I put cows over there. Well, you know, sometimes they get lost. Yeah. <laughs> so, so air uh, quotes lost. So, uh, and so, you know, we spent a lot of time, well, calling neighbors and trying to figure out where yeah. they went. Right. Because <laughs> those four footed things represent a pretty sizable investment, each right. one of them. Right. They do. I mean, these, these cattle are, are worth more than uh, your average bear. So, uh, yeah. trying to make sure we stay, keep tracks of where they are and where, where they've been is uh, pretty important. And, you know, 
So tech, now more than ever, is all around us, and it shouldn't necessarily be viewed as a means to an end all on its own. But when it aligns with our business or even our more altruistic goals, it can be an incredible catalyst for growth, innovation, and restoration. Whether it's grand champion cattle, a better way to map and track your pastures, or robotics on the farm, technology has a place in the dirt and in the weeds and in the sun and in the rain. But as you heard throughout this episode, each of these individuals were being driven by a higher sense of purpose, as many who are involved in regenerative agriculture often are. And if this strikes a chord, being involved in something bigger than yourself, but you're knee deep in an existing career, I want to take us back to the interview with Lou Mormon just one more time. I asked him at the outset of the interview, why are you making this pivot? What was the catalyst? Well, here's his answer. About two years ago, me and my partner, uh, for a variety of reasons, which we can get into, uh, both became very passionate about regenerative agriculture. We're concerned about the climate and concerned about nutrition. We then decided that we thought it might be um, a, a great way to uh, spend the next chapter of our, of our business lives. And we formed Soilworks, uh, which is a holding company, and it's devoted to the idea of how do we get regenerative agriculture to the mainstream. And we think business is a very important way to do it. We're not ranchers. We're not farmers at our core. We're not going to add to that, but we do think we can help with business and technology to help make it something that is goes well beyond the farmer's markets. I mean, if, we, if it just stays in farmer's markets forever, it's not going to really have the big impact we want. So we want to try and get it to be a mainstream food movement um, that scales to the moon. So what are your passions and your skills? What can you use about yourself to better the world? If this is important to you, it's never too late. By the way, shop local, shop seasonal, and frequent your local farmer's markets. This has been Cloud Talk. You can find Cloud Talk wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And be sure to check out more content from Rackspace Solve at solve.rackspace.com. Well, there we go. Our first episode of the tech behind the industry all finished up. I sure hope you enjoyed it. It was great fun for me to put together a huge thank you to Lou and to Sarah and to Rick. You'll find all of their information in the show notes. Should you want to learn more about what those folks are up to now? Also, I want to thank Dell technologies. You see, they sponsor us over here at Rackspace at the solve program. Now solve is the umbrella that we do all of our thought leadership uh, in. And this, this podcast is one of those things. But if you'll go over to solve.rackspace.com, there's articles and videos and all kinds of great stuff. And I really hope you go check that out. And also please subscribe to this podcast. We put one out every week and that way you'll have it always ready to go. And we take one of those five star reviews if you wouldn't mind also. Now in our next episode, we're going to dig into all things private cloud and some of the amazing innovations that are going on in this space today. We'll see you next time on Cloud Talk.